welcome to Just Theory, a series of conversations that champions female-led ideas in legal theory and philosophy. In this episode, we will tell you how the project came about and why you should also be excited about female legal scholarship. So, without further ado, I present you episode one, the teaser. Hello and welcome to this Legal Theory podcast. My name is Dr. Emilia Mickiewicz and I'm a lecturer in law at Newcastle Law School. I'm absolutely delighted uh, to bring this podcast to you, which spans both legal theory and uh, legal fields, both of which I'm absolutely passionate about. And I'm bringing this project together with Alexandra. Hello, Alexandra. Who will introduce herself? (laughs) (laughs) I am Alexandra Wawrzyszczuk. I'm a research assistant for the project. I am also a graduate student at NYU Law School, where I am completing my LLM in legal theory. And I must say, I'm very excited to finally be doing this project. It's been years in the making, pretty much since my undergrad. And you may remember our initial conversations about Mm. this back in like 2012, maybe, when I remember bringing this up to your attention that uh, for every single citation, one of the papers that we discussed, that was, you know, a citation by the likes of Philippa Foote or Elizabeth Anscombe, you would have like 50, 60, 120 citations by by male philosophers. And I think as a kind of budding legal researcher in law and philosophy and legal theory, this absence of female presence, it's it's an awkward sentence, but this Mm. absence of of just feminine presence in academia uh, was resounding and so strange. Yeah, Yeah, I think you did mention, obviously, uh, Philippa Foote and Elizabeth Anscombe, both of whom were pioneers in female uh, philosophical scholarship. They belong to a Oxford, to to the school known as as the female Oxford for philosophers, along Iris Mordock and Mary Midgley. Mary Midgley said, that they only came to prominence because at the time when they've been at Oxford, and that was the Second World War, they were uh, there were no men um, in, in at Oxford at the time. Oh, because, because they, they were at war, war, right? Yeah, they were. Yes, so so it was it was um, kind of sad um, that she believed that the only reason why female philosophers were able to be heard was because there were no men in the room. So, so yes, I, I thought I thought this kind of resonates well with historical circumstances in or historical path that some women had to forge. So think about a thought experiment, and I mean you can tell it's a philosophy podcast because we're already doing a thought experiment. Uh, <laughs> but entertain me: if all men disappeared now, can you imagine just wandering the corridors of you know NYU or Newcastle or any other institution? Mm with this complete absence of men would be so strange. But at the same time, you know, this thought kind of makes me happy and not happy because I don't want to see any men in academia. That's completely not Mm. the case. But because there would be more of us than just the four women like, you know, Anscombe, Foote, Murdoch and Midgley. And I think that so much work has been done in recent Mm. years to build that presence. I love this thought experiment but this is precisely what I would like this to stay at, like. I would like this to remain just a thought experiment because 
in reality, what we want to fo- what we want to foster and create is an environment which is truly inclusive, regardless of your background, of your gender, where we have a genuine dialogue in philosophy where everyone can participate in an equal measure. So I think what we're trying to do with this podcast is to normalize female presence in academia. If you agree with me, obviously. Yeah, I think that I think normalizing is a great way to put it. And also just the title of our project, the just theory, Mm. it's not to do with justice. It's to do with the fact that we're only interested in ideas and promoting this exchange of ideas and a dialogue regardless of anybody's background anybody's identity I think is exactly what we need and as part Mm. of it normalizing the presence of women in room full of men in in that particular field especially you know analytic jurisprudence Mm. it's it's uh, you you might remember this. Remember when I was very junior and I had the privilege, I was invited to respond to a paper by this really established male male law professor. And we entered a, you know, the room full of people. And the first thing he says to me before even saying hello is, oh, you're so tall. Are you a basketball player? And I'm like, mm. oh, I'm a grad student responding to your paper. <laughs> it's quite, quite remarkable that this kind of narratives and comments remain um, present today in the less 21st so century. Every, yeah, but less so every day. And also, you know, we must be careful. I don't I don't want to give anybody the impression that we're organizing a little pity party. I think that no, there is, yeah, there is so much power in, in the scholarship, but it's just about normalizing and it's, a, it's about, you know, promoting ideas and exchanging ideas and doing mm. it in an also entertaining fashion, I, I think. Yeah, and we obviously um, we welcome men to to come along uh, to uh, our podcast and and respond to some of our speakers. So we are creating that, that truly inclusive environment. What is also interesting, you did mention that we want to um, create a more kind of entertaining podcast, or one that is more accessible. That again connects to Mary Midgley, whose legacy was to produce philosophy that is accessible to an everyday person, not some kind of exclusive audience. Yes, I do agree. You know, we, we need this kind of inclusive environment. We need to do it in a more accessible fashion. And, and I always, when I read, you know, do you remember postmodern POMO generator? So there is this a kind of algorithmic app that's web-based I'm not quite sure if I yeah. do. <laughs> so it 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 generates gibberish, but it makes it sound academic. So All right. it's like essays that make no sense, an article that makes it makes absolutely no sense, but it sounds very clever. Mm. And I think there is this tendency, and I think it's also very prevalent, especially among my peers in grad school. We are all we've all been through that phase when we try to sound clever, especially if you know maybe the, the topic is quite complex. And simplifying that and detangling that, I think it was going to be the key to expanding and also to, to survival of philosophy in academia in a way. Mm. This objective resonates really well with your personal objective, if I, if, I'm, if I may say so, because I believe your mind is much more kind of analytical mind or analytic mind than mine, or you would <laughs> often associate yourself with this analytic tradition which is committed to clarity 
to um, pure meaning and um, clarifying concepts in a in a transparent fashion. Am I am I right there? Yeah, I, you know, I agree to an extent. Um, and I think the idea of the podcast also came from all those conversations that we were having, the very heated discussions about various philosophical con- concepts and whether they were part of our you know, research projects or just something we read. It would be great to start talking about the super complex themes and present those disagreements in a more accessible fashion. So you are obviously, you obviously come from a different tradition. I'm a robot brain, uh, computer <laughs> says no. And you're like, oh, but we should definitely bring more pragmatism to it. And everything needs to be more for the people. Yeah, as much as I'm absolutely um, impressed and uh, with, with your pristine mind and your commitment to clarity, I have to say that sometimes what is sometimes known as um, continental tradition, recognizes that life is more complex than some analytical or analytic philosophers would like it to be. So sometimes we are subject to incommensurable forces that go against one another, and we have to make sense out of of them. Um, So I think we're coming from two very different angles. And perhaps if we have this commitment to clarity, maybe this is a good opportunity to explain to our listeners what do those terms analytic and continental actually mean if you, if you think it makes sense to define them <laughs> since we're yeah. so committed to clarity otherwise we're going to be so hypocr- it's going to be hypocritical uh, to just talk about clarity and accessibility and then just keep on talking about you know talking in, in mystical terms um but as you know, how would you probably, define how would you define analytic tradition then, Alexandra? It's probably better if you define it, because of course, from my perspective, there is philosophy and then continental literature. That's very <laughs> nice. Oh, sometimes not so nice to read. Uh, but uh, but but completely seriously, I think if we define analytic uh, philosophy more in terms of promoting clarity of thought and promoting an almost mathematical scientific approach to matters such as language, um, then we are getting onto something. But then one caveat that I would make is that this distinction, as you know, can be quite artificial. And I think in Hmm. recent years, especially, it's become much more artificial and the lines have become much more blurred. Hmm. I would definitely agree with you that uh, the distinction between analytic and continental philosophy is somewhat artificial. And um, someone who I'm sure is coming to your mind at the moment is is an Austrian philosopher who is often associated with analytic tradition, yet his works span a whole spectrum of traditions. Is Ludwig Wittgenstein. And in his early works, he is often uh, thought of as someone who was committed to analytic philosophy, to clarity, to purity, to uh, scarcity um, of, of language. His leading motto in the Tractatus was not to speak about things that cannot be expressed in a meaningful fashion. So he was very, very, how, how to put it, um, restrained in terms of what he wants to put on paper. And that was always read as his commitment to analytic 
clarity and somewhat reductionist vision of the world, which fails to recognize the importance of ethics and other matters, metaphysical metaphysical, uh, matters that are often associated with continental philosophy. But I think it's unfair. And some philosophers like Ray Monk, for example, would argue that even the early Wittgenstein was committed to a broader contextual um, analysis of the world because that motto was essentially his, um, he wanted to express his respect for those big ideas that cannot be spoken of. So I think, I think this, is, this is a good example of, of how analytic tradition and continental tradition cannot be clearly um, distinguished. You can almost see me just being super keen to pounce on that, because for me, we also need to make a distinction between the original works of a philosopher and the entire scholarship that branched out of those original works and that almost takes a life of its own. And Mm. that tying back to the purpose of our project, because you didn't have so many female cants, as I call them, you know, this super productive, influential philosophers with an even bigger following and and a disproportionately bigger body of work of their followers, then I think some of those ideas tend to, from from female scholars or female philosophers, can be lost somewhere in libraries or not get the attention that they really deserve or not get the following that they really deserve. And I think the aim of our project is to also bring those ideas to light and Mm. give them the the following and start building the following that they really deserve. Yeah, this is why some of our uh, podcasts will be devoted to um, historical figures in legal theory or uh, in, in philosophy more generally and the impact they had on legal theory today. So this is reflected, or this, this, this commitment to a recovery of some past ideas will be present in what we, what we do with, with this series of podcasts. Yeah, and I think the best example of that it will be uh, of our discussion about the female representatives of the Warsaw School of Logic, And I am also particularly excited for this episode because I look forward to hearing about your project in model logic and bringing it to legal theory. I think that's super exciting. And I'm also hoping that it will make logic more accessible because we all need a little bit of algorithmic thinking in our life <laughs> that's, well that's something that's something I would like to I would like to um, again slightly depart from or I hope I hope to domesticate some complex logical ideas and make them more accessible to our, our audience uh, so for example you mentioned Warsaw School of Logic and uh, Tarski was one of the leading figures there. He was an incredibly charismatic philosopher, but also an incredibly um, obscure one. And this is hardly surprising because mathematics and logic tend to be obscure. However, the idea of modal logic itself, I think it can be expressed in much more simple terms. And its relevance to law is can be expressed in much more accessible terms. What is modal logic? Just to again define <laughs> and explain, and uh, not to be hypocritical. Hypocritical here. 
So modal logic is about taking into account changes, contingencies, um, the dimensions of time and space into otherwise uh, pure calculus of logic. Um, so we can imagine that classical logic or formal logic would occupy itself with claims that are ever valid, always true, regardless of the circumstances, irrespective on, of, of the context in which they are being expressed. But modal logic takes into account modalities of life or change th th those chain changing variables, such as time and space. How this uh, works out in practice, we can think of Rylands and Fletcher and uh, the non-natural use of land, for example, the requirement. What is what is non-natural in times of war could be natural uh, or other way around. What is natural in times of war could be non-natural in normal times. You can think of a factory of munition that producing munition will be a natural use in times of war, but in times of peace, it's going to be considered non-natural use of land. So modal logic is about that. It's about taking into account contingencies of everyday life, practical uh, dimension. And I hope to explain this perhaps better <laughs> with our actual <laughs> actual episode. And I don't want to go into this uh, now, uh, but I hope to kind of simplify those ideas in, in, in the um, modal logic podcast. Yeah, that would be amazing. And I, I, as I said, I'm really looking forward to it. We also have an amazing lineup of guests that are at the moment quite hush-hush because we're obviously finalizing still the details. Uh, but we're hoping that some of uh, big names of in our, uh, in our field uh, will grace us with their presence and we'll get the privilege of interviewing them and discussing their scholarship with them. Uh, another thing that I think we need to mention before we wrap up is that one of the episodes will be about Mary Midgley and her connection, uh, because of yeah. her connection to Newcastle, uh, we thought that it would be quite a good figure to soft launch our project with. Uh, so the soft launch took place uh, at Newcastle University a while ago, hmm. uh, but it would be great to discuss some of the connections to legal theory, uh, most of which we completely made up. So do stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I disagree that we completely made up the connection between Mary Medley's philosophy and legal theory, because she was deeply concerned with some very per very pertinent ideas in law. So, for example, she was concerned about animal rights uh, and she was also uh, a moral philosopher. And the question remains, how do we distinguish some important question of morality from questions of law? So that's the division between law and morality. Does it even exist? Or perhaps moral questions are being notoriously present and expressed in case law in legislation. Um, this is something that is up for exploration, I suppose, in our upcoming upcoming episodes. Yeah, it's better not to get into it now because of course I disagree with most of the things that you just said. Um, <laughs> but but I do value I do value her insight into normativity, that's for sure. Uh, but mm. uh, you know my opinion of, of Majidi, I think she was just a huge contrarian uh, who, and a super fierce woman who was uh, trying or to change the rules of the game. Someone who was very attuned to complexity, I would say. Exactly. <laughs> Somebody trying to change the rules of a game and, and an absolutely fascinating person to discuss as well. I think we've been speaking for long enough now. So uh, we are absolutely looking forward to seeing you very soon. 
Um, and expect more disagreements. It's going to be uh, plenty yeah. of disagreements, plenty of obscure ideas coming to life before your very eyes. So uh, do stay tuned. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Hi, it's Alexander here. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like our project, have any questions, or would like to recommend a guest or a topic, drop us a line on just.theory.project at gmail.com. This season was made possible with the generous funding of Newcastle University. If you like, you can buy us a coffee. Your support will enable us to continue our work. Just Theory. Changing the face of legal theory.